Hello, boys and girls. That's my Mr. DT impression. What's up, everyone? My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the promotional malpractice for Wednesday, the 4th of what month is this? October 2017. I haven't talked to you since September when I was gone on vacation, but I am back. I am back from the sunny shores of Cartagena, Colombia. Uh, it was a nice vacation. I'm glad to be back. Lots to get to today on the program. You have UFC 216, which is this weekend. I missed a couple of events while I was gone. I didn't catch all of them, but I caught most of them. Um, so there's that. There's, of course, still looking ahead. Conor McGregor's next contest. There's a lot of sort of smaller issues. Chris Cyborg is feuding with the UFC, and Alistair Overeem is going to fight Francis uh, Ngannou. Lots of good stuff going on. So any of those are up for grabs. Really, I'll say this. Anything is up for grabs. MMA-centric. But, uh, you know, if you got sort of boxing-related questions or jiu-jitsu or martial arts or even a little bit beyond that, you know, let's experiment. Let's have a little fun today, shall we? Um, and, of course, the best place to get that in is going to be on in the comments section on MMAfighting.com where this post is embedded. And then, again, on Twitter as well. You can follow me on Twitter at LThomasNews. And then uh, use, use the hashtag and or use the hashtag uh, chat wrappers. But you guys know that all of the information for that is contained therein. Hang on, let me fix this doohickey here. As you see, I come prepared. There we go. It's a little bit better. Okay. Missed you guys. Um, it was a good break. And, uh, well, it was, just, it was a, okay, it was a good break. But uh, the day I left, which was a Monday, I was insanely sick, not like stomach sick, but like some sort of terrible virus sick, and which lasted several days when I got there. And then I got sunburned like you just wouldn't believe. Uh, that Caribbean sun is no joke, man. I'm, I never get sunburned ever. And you might be like, well, Luke, you have to use like protect, you know, skin protection, uh, sunblock. I did. Oh, no, no. You have to put on every two to three hours. Right. I did. Just gotta understand that Caribbean, that Caribbean sun will just cook you right through all of that. Uh, so it was amazing. My wife had to put something on me. It's like this South American version of like Pepto Bismol. It's called like I forget what it's called, but it's white. And you had to put it on a plier in your skin, and it actually worked out really well. I didn't suffer the too badly from it, but um, yeah, that was a learning experience for sure. Okay, that was actually my second time in Cartagena. I didn't get burned the first time. I got torched this time. Uh, I don't know what the difference was. All right. Neither here nor there. Let us get to these questions. All right. First one up. Wow. Okay. Uh, let's do it then. I guess you kind of have to, given the events oh, oops there we are we're good now right yes um given the events of the week uh, i suppose there's you have to start with the las vegas tragedy obviously because this is tragic on its own terms um wouldn't matter what city that it took place in but that it took place in the united states and uh in a place that is the uh fight capital of the world obviously brings it a little bit closer to home for many of us again it would be a tragedy no matter what uh shocking in every capacity imaginable uh the question here is luke hopefully had a great vacation i did thank you this could be a stupid question but if the attack in las vegas was done by a terrorist group 
and not just a random person, would US 216 and other big events in the city be canceled? That would be entirely up to the security officials and the various private actors involved. I'm assuming if the attack had happened and it was safe and they had a reasonable degree of certainty that it was not going to have some sort of copycat down the street, it would be fine. Usually when there's an attack like that, they all happen in relatively quick succession. Even when the Bataclan was attacked in France, there were other satellite attacks, but they all happened within hours of the same thing. So um, my guess is yes, it probably will st would still go forward. And in fact, Dana White, credit to him, made a really great point because he was like, look, if you care about Las Vegas, the thing to do is to come here. I mean, yes, the situation that happened on su Sunday night was you know, uh, a, a monstrous act that is almost difficult to describe in the English language. And yet the reality is, generally speaking, of course, I know it sounds crazy to say in a week like this, but generally speaking, Las Vegas is safe. You know, I've been there, you know, half a, I mean, I've been there dozens of times and never had an incident. And I think we can all agree this is not one you can easily replicate at scale in Las Vegas this week. Um, and, uh, you know, spend money there, right? Go visit, spend money, stay in a hotel room, get a cab, buy a meal. These things are really good for the local economy and for the city and its morale is to show that people don't stay away. In fact, in the face of these kinds of challenges, they show right back up. So actually, I really give tons of credit for, to the UFC, not merely for giving a million dollars and to Joe Rogan as well, um, donating the proceeds of his Friday show. I'm assuming this is going to be in the thousands. Um, this is you know not an insignificant contribution, but then to provide the, the kind of, and I don't, and I, it's not, it's not enough to say rhetoric because that's not quite true to provide that kind of steadfast emotional leadership. And frankly, I, I, I mean, this is the right idea. I mean, if the, in an ideas contest, he's got the right one in this particular context. So um, I, I give a ton of credit to them for doing all the things that they've done. Uh, in your opinion, can this be prevented? How can this be prevented? Put as simply as possible. Gun control is the first thing that comes to mind, of course. But what are the key changes need to take place? Sorry for not everybody related question, but really want to know your take on this. Um, well, look, this is not a political podcast. So I'll try to keep this to a very bare minimum. And I also know that I think there was a piece today in five thirty eight about this. Americans have never been more split on gun control. So there's nothing I'm going to say. Um, because I'm not an expert on gun control. There's nothing I'm going to say that's going to convince you if you are, uh, whether you are in favor of gun control or not. It, it, it's really not going to matter. Um, but there, there is, I think, one thing we do need to have a bit of a public airing about, and I don't think it's partisan necessarily. It could become one, but I don't think that it is. Um, you know, one of the things I try to do, and I'm sure I could do a better job of it, one of the things I try to do is I try to read things I routinely disagree with. Because sometimes if it's an outlet, number one, I'll actually agree. And number two, even if I don't agree, I'll have to try and figure out why. You, you really want to read stuff like that. You really want to consume stuff like that. And you have to be very judicious about what you pick. You know, I certainly would not recommend reading or paying attention to InfoWars. This is deeply unreliable, totally unserious stuff, right? Um, but there's probably a ton of things either to the left or to the right, depending on your political and worldview leanings, you could pick up that can really challenge your worldview and you need that. And there's a lot of ways in which I try to do that. One of them has been, in particular this week, um, two uh, writers I really like that I don't often agree with. Sometimes I do, uh, but in many cases I don't. Ben Dominich and Charles uh, Cook 
And Domenech in particular writes and is the founder, I believe, of The Federalist. And uh, like me, once a woman Mary. But um, The Federalist I don't, I don't typically agree with, but I really like reading it because it has a very clear rebellious streak. And not trolling, but a very clear rebellious streak. Like they're really unafraid of trying to articulate worldviews that could be perceived as hot takes, but I don't think they are. And again, this is not a function of me disagreeing or agreeing. Um, they're not out there saying things they don't knowingly believe. They're, they're really trying to, to argue things. And there was an article this week that I thought was actually kind of really interesting, in part because it made some great points. One was, I think the title of it was something to the effect of um, Democrats don't have any answers for how to solve mass shootings. And he goes through and looks at, I believe it was a Nicholas Kristof article in the New York Times, um, who had proposed a series of gun control measures and this person went through and delineated why each of those solutions either uh, may not work, like there's not, it's not really clear that it would or it wouldn't, there wasn't a strong argument for it, or matter-of-factly would not. But the article ends there. It just sort of say, here's why Nicholas Kristof or these, these people who are generally sympathetic to these are wrong. And part of it is that these individual measures, the, the author argued, would not work. And then generally, the other one was a sort of a misapplication of it, right? Because... Um, mass shootings are terribly unlike most gun crime in the United States. Two-thirds of gun crimes, about 33,000, um, are suicides. That's how I lost my mother, right? Not really to suicide, but via gun. So I am a victim in that sense of a gun crime. Um, so it's something that obviously touches a little bit more close to home, but two-thirds of them are suicide. That's. It's not clear that some measures you would take to say... Um, solve for mass shootings would have any real impact on that, which is the bulk of crime, crime or, you know, gun, gun violence anyway. Um, in other cases, you, you know, predominantly affects males, white males, um, or no, I think black males too, but predominantly males between like 15 and 35, something like that. You know, how do you reconcile that where mass shootings are, uh, from a demographic standpoint, they split mostly evenly between men and women in terms of victims. Point being is, you know, they're just terribly, gun crime is terribly different and gun violence is terribly different. Um, even if even if all these proposals were implemented, it's not clear they would have anything to do with mass shootings. Okay, so there's some, actually some really decent points that are made in the article, but ultimately, just to wind up here and move on to MMA, it just the article the article is Democrats don't have any answers. Let's assume that's true, just for the sake of argument. Let's assume that's true. If that is in fact true, uh, and I'm willing to believe that it is, if that is in fact true, um, what is the what is the GOP or the proposal from the right to tackle these issues, right? Because it, what it seems to me is that it is very easy to say that the current, or relatively easy anyway, to say that the current efforts at tackling gun crime in the country are uh, either inadequate or um, perhaps illegal if they go against the uh, reading of the Second Amendment. Um, but it's not like tax reform where the left has ideas and the right has ideas. And so they're both trying to solve some you know, various problems with a different set of policy ideas. Here's my point. This is why I think I can ultimately feel like this is not really all that partisan. I'm not willing to say that the current answers for solving this problem will in fact work. But I'm also not willing to say that uh, 59 people, as is currently counted, and 500 more maimed, injured, and deeply you know, badly affected not to say all the other family members who have been you know affected by this there was a mother of four single mother of four who was killed i mean so you know the ramifications of this are extraordinary i'm not willing to say 
at this stage that the answer is we just have to live with it. Uh, and if you are, if you're saying, well, the Democrats don't have answers, okay, fine, maybe they don't. You need to say what your position is quite clearly, that as a matter of preserving these uh, norms and laws, I am okay as a person with this kind of savagery intermittently happening, right? Don't say things like, don't, don't, don't use these euphemisms, these obfuscations, like, well, the Democrats don't have answers, okay, so what is yours, right? Because if your answer is gun control doesn't work, Maybe you're right, maybe you're not. What does? Because the to me, the notion of simply accepting this as a condition of existence is totally untenable. Um, and empowering, which is currently not something they're allowed to do by law, empowering uh, various arms of the government, including the National Institutes of Health, and allowing to research gun crime and allowing them to research um, ways to solve this problem is actually the way to go here. Because if we don't have the answers, I believe that the question should be, let's see if we can figure out what they are. All right. And with that, we move on. Jesus, the threat on this is huge. All right, Rockhold. Welcome back, Luke. Thank you. Hope you had a good holiday in Columbia. I did. Uh, have you had a chance to catch up on the Rockhold branch fight? Yes. Yes, I did. If so, what was your take on how Rockhold looked in that fight? given he has had roughly 15 months out. Uh, okay, let me read the whole question first. Did you think the change of camp helped or hindered him? He started slow, but then systematically took apart Branch in the second and got a solid win, a tune-up fight that you advocate. Yeah, it was a little more than a tune-up fight. Uh, could you put the slow start down to rustiness or maybe a weight cut? He mentioned the MMA hour that he may go to light heavyweight, which could be a nice home for him, especially if DC goes up. However, DC didn't really seem to matter to Rockhold. Hmm. What would you like to see him do now? All right, let's sort of go back and say what we thought about the fight. I thought all things considered, it went pretty well. There was that one moment where he was getting uh, chewed up a little bit with his back against the fence, that flurry that David Branch had. But I thought, generally speaking, um, the management of the fight was basically okay. Uh, on the ground, damn, dude, Luke Rockhold is phenomenal. He is really, really good on the ground. He has, and I think... It's not just that he has a lot of skills and a lot of positions. He has excellent passing. He has excellent passing awareness. And it's an effortless kind of passing, too, where, you know, for guys hunting for a pass, um, it, it can sometimes be easier to stop them because you're engaged in this chess battle. He gets it to where your brain is thinking about something else and he just slides and takes it, you know, or he'll have good enough technique where you can't stop it anyway. Um, there are guys who are who are just really naturally good passers. Luke Rockhold is a naturally good passer. And then once he takes him out, his balance is, is phenomenal. It's really, 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 really good, especially for a big, lanky guy like that. Sometimes those guys don't have the best balance because if you're short and squatty, um, you know, your weight is so collected in a sort of center of mass, it makes it hard to move. He doesn't have any of those problems. So I was really impressed by that. And then, you know, David Branch gets him to tap to strikes. Um, pretty impressive. It's just for me, it's like he seems to maybe have a little bit of range issues. He seems to maybe have, and again, this could all just be rustiness. I'm not saying this will necessarily affect him in his last one. But if there is any kind of common bond in, let's say, the Bisping, second Bisping and Branch fight, it's that it's a little, a little bit uh, Alan Jobanish where there's not enough defensive responsibility and anticipating an attack with head movement. 
um, or range management. There's a little bit of something there, but I don't think either of those going forward are necessarily lethal, although it certainly cost him quite badly against Bisping. Um, but short of that, I thought he looked good. Did the change of camp dramatically help him? Didn't hurt him, at least not much, um, not in any kind of demonstrable way. And if he's feeling good and he's looking like he is, once he took over, I mean, I'm not sure what you can really say. If he continues to have some issues striking, then maybe you could say something about it. But I, I don't know that there's any real evidence to conclude that, you know, whatever he's doing down there with Henry Hooft is, you know, pushing him backwards. Uh, I don't see that at all. What would you like to see him do next? His call out for GSP to not fight was pretty poor. And I would like to see him fight Yoel or Weidman for the next shot at Bisping GSP after Whitaker has had his shot. But that seems like a long time away, unfortunately. Yeah, any of those would be good. A rematch with Weidman would be kind of interesting now that both got back on the winning track. Um, seeing him fight Yoel would be kind of interesting as well, although I think Rockhold would really win that one because if he could avoid a big punch, which is, again, this, there may be an issue there, but if he could avoid it, and he probably could, uh, his cardio would absolutely just take over. Absolutely just take over. And uh, so, so I don't know. But the Weidman one is kind of interesting to me. Really interesting to me. Getting the next shot of Bisping versus GSP, I don't know. But, I mean, that division is so so messed up right now in terms of its contendership queue that it could possibly happen. It could possibly happen. But yeah, I thought all in all, I give it a pretty high mark. B plus, A minus, like pr pretty good. Once he got going, man, it was, he got going. Uh, okay, the Mount Rushmore of MMA. On many occasions on Joe Rogan's Fight Companion podcast, they talk about this, but never narrow it down to definite four fighters because it's pretty hard. Interestingly, on Chael Sonnen's podcast a couple of months ago when it was brought up to him, he said that to make it onto Mount Rushmore like the real one, the fighters you include would have to be innovators of their era, e.g. Hoist Gracie. Which four fighters would you put on Mount Rushmore and what criteria would you look at when deciding? Does failed drug test affect a fighter's inclusion? You have Silva and Jones. Uh, Conor McGregor could definitely be classed as an innovator. Has he been around long enough to merit this inclusion? Uh, Randy Couture because of his first two world weight. Oh, Jesus. Um, when you say Mount Rushmore, you meaning like sort of the four most important fighters in the history, something like that? Um, so the first ones that matter, I mean, I guess you could put up Hoist. Um, what would my criteria be? This is a really bizarre question because you sort of had to ask yourself which ones. I mean, it's easy to do Mount Rushmore um, with U.S. presidents because they all hold the same office. Now, the office means different things in different eras, but it's still the same office. So you're all judging against a common standard. It'd be much easier to do like the Mount Rushmore of UFC or you know, even then, the Mount Rushmore of MMA lightweights or something, UFC lightweights, because you're all under a common standard. Um so that's what makes this kind of difficult because is one guy going to be let in? I mean, this, the whole the, it, people are treating the Mount Rushmore like the four most important people from the Hall of Fame or something, where it's like, okay, there's the general population of fighters, then the very elite ones, more or less, get put into the Hall of Fame. There are some exceptions, as we know. And then the Mount Rushmore would be inside of that, the, the true 
a truly elite group. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That would be a really tough one. Gracie seems like a shoe-in, just given the historical significance. But after that, do you put in a Silva or a St. Pierre or a Fedor or a McGregor, who's not even in the Hall of Fame yet? Uh, although that seems like a foregone conclusion at this point. Um, yeah, I, it's tough. It's tough. And it's sort of almost meaningless in a way. Um, but it would be somewhere along those lines. So I, I, I don't know, something like Hoist, Fedor, even Fedor at this point, I don't know. Certainly Hoist, GSP, I would put for sure. Silva, probably. Beyond that, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. These are terrible answers. I, I apologize. Someone says CM Punk, Bob Sapp, Aki Bono, and Hongman Choi. Yes, sir. Another person says Hoist Gracie, Randy Couture, BJ Penn, Anderson Silva. Interesting choice. Someone says Forrest Griffin is the Abe Lincoln of MMA. Not really. <laughs> Northcutt, CM Punk, Tank Abbott, Edmund Tarverdian. And then someone says, if you consider most important, wouldn't you have to include Ronda? Maybe. Sure, maybe. Uh, that she, the way she flamed out, though, it's so weird. But yeah, maybe, given the pioneering effects. Someone says, didn't Hoist fill a drug test, too? I believe he did, yes. So there's that, too. So yeah, maybe Ronnie goes, oh, man, Jesus, it's tough. I think they haven't really narrowed it down on the Joe Rogan podcast. I mean, I don't want to speak for them, but it sounds like they haven't narrowed it down because it's really complicated. Um, if you're all talking about people who held the same public office, measuring their historical significance seems a lot more manageable a task. Um, but when you don't do that, it becomes much more difficult. Like, who would be on American football's Mount Rushmore? Who would be on world football's Mount Rushmore, you know? Uh, okay. In my perfect world, who does Conor McGregor fight next? So, this was a big debate that happened while I was gone. I was paying attention to it. I was watching everything play out. I have to say, there was a while there, especially in the follow-up, the immediate follow-up, I should say, to Mayweather McGregor, where it just kind of felt like um, that the toothpaste was out of the tube on the Nate Diaz fight. Like, that was just an inevitability that was going to happen. And that still may be the case, um, especially if the uh, people that be at the UFC feel like they really need that kind of financial re return that fight might offer. But I have to say, I feel like there's a bit of a shift change happening on that. Which is to say, um, think about it this way. It's not that, first of all, it's not that I'd be against seeing an ADS fight for a third time. I mean, it's not my number one choice. Let me, let me be clear about that. It's not my number one choice. But I would hardly be, you know, morally outraged by it. All right. But think of it this way. Conor McGregor himself, much to his credit, by the way, has said that, um, that a certain amount of legitimacy has to be restored to the division. And I'm glad he said that because it's really true. Look, someone who holds the belt 
we can all say whatever we want about these belts that make us feel better. Oh, you know, they're just holding on to them for bargaining power. And there could be some truth to that. But the reality is, if you hold a belt, you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. It's as simple as that. That's why, you know, UFC has sometimes made that hard to appreciate. Um, and sometimes fighters themselves have made it hard to appreciate based on their own actions or decisions that they've made. But the reality is, if you hold a belt, you are assuming a position. You are assuming a certain responsibility. You are assuming um, the mantle of somebody who now says, my task is to hold position in, in almost all cases and accept challengers, right? I am the man or woman at this weight class. Let them come and try. That, that's really what this is about. It's about establishing a hierarchy and order um, a system by which the division moves. That's that's really what it's about. And yes, once you get the belt, it confers upon you greater paydays. It confers upon you um, more visibility. There's lots of things about it that are more than just that responsibility that impact your life. But that's fundamentally what this is about. It's what the recognition is about. It's what the responsibility that comes with it is about. And so for him to say that, I really appreciated that because it, it, it desperately is needed. It's not like in every case the UFC currently has some sort of measure of chaos. I mean, whatever you think about the entertainment value of Tyrone Woodley's last two fights, you know, he came in saying he wanted money, fought money weight fights, and the guy went out there and fought the number one contender that everybody asked him to. Um, and, you know, so again, say what you want about the fights, but those were the rightful ones. But at middleweight, it's a, it's a show. At light heavyweight, God knows what's going to happen. Yes, Stipe is doing his thing up at heavyweight. Um, but that got impacted partly by what happened to John Jones and what's going to happen with Cain Velazquez. And, and then lightweight is certainly up in flux. Uh, Max Holloway has finally restored some order to, uh, featherweight. Bantamweight is moving along quite nicely. We'll see what happens at, at, at light, excuse me, at uh, flyweight. But the point being is it's not, look, this is the marquee division in MMA. I'm sorry. It, it'd be nice to return some order to it. And so to me, you're asking me what would happen in a perfect world. Conor McGregor, I think we can safely say at this point, and perhaps I'm wrong, but. If he fights, it doesn't matter who he fights at this point. He's good for about a million buys or more. I don't really feel like that's very controversial. Now, I'm not saying one seven, one eight, uh, but you know, one one, one two, feels fairly comfortable given the his amount of celebrity. And so, to me, it would not be a small fight if he fought the winner of Tony Ferguson versus Kevin Lee. It would restore some order. And it would remind us, look, what is the core product here? The core product here, I know some people want to just paste upon them, upon the structure of their pro wrestling, um, you know, worldview, that this is just real pro wrestling. And in some ways, that's an undeniably true thing. But uh, it is also a place where the best fight the best. That is how it made its name. It is a, it, that is what the core product is. It, it, not every time, not all the time, but mostly. And there's been enough of them mostly outside of the core product for us to say it's time to get back a little bit to that core product, especially if you don't financially lose, not as much as you would get from the Nate Diaz fight, but you don't really lose. And to me, you look at Tony Ferguson's resume already, he deserves a title shot. If he goes up there and he beats Kevin Lee and becomes an interim champ, I mean, how could you possibly deny the guy? And Kevin Lee, no, his resume is not as good as Tony Ferguson's, but if he beats Tony Ferguson and he does claim that mantle and you know he's a very polarizing guy um then that that, that should be the guy who fights conor mcgregor and i think conor mcgregor kind of wants it a little bit 
you know, everyone, it's, it's amazing. Everyone kind of treats Connor like, oh, I'm this guy who's going to chase money, money, money. And yes, of course, it's such a big part of what he does. It'd be foolish to say these aren't like very relevant considerations for him. But I also think it's very unfair just to say that's like the chief driving motivator for him. I do consider him a sportsman and I do consider him a competitor and I do consider him as somebody who likes to challenge himself again. Why did he fight Mayweather to get a hundred million dollars? Yeah, of course. But however, you know, uh, foolhardy that may have been, I thought he thought he was going to win. He thought he was going to, cause he's a competitor. So let him compete, let him compete, put the title up for grabs. Let's unify this thing. Let's see what can happen. Cause I think you can make the Nate Diaz fight independent of a belt independent of 155 i know connor wants it there i'm just saying i don't think it hinges on whether he's the champion i don't think it hinges on whether he wins or loses against the winner of ferguson versus uh uh lee i really don't so the interesting thing to me is you don't have to make the net you can make the nate ds fight now but you don't really have to you can do the other fights make a ton of cash and I kind of feel like the Nate Diaz fight is the reserve fight. Plus, if you're the UFC, now look, and again, if they made the Nate Diaz fight, okay, they make it. But if you're the UFC, you're probably saying to yourself, or if, even if you're Connor, look, let's say that the UFC has like 40 million to give for a fight, which seems already at the high end. But let's just say it's 40, yeah? Connor's going to want 20 of that. He's going to want half. You're going to give the other half to Nate? Nah. He's not, he's not going he's not going to do that. So Kevin Lee can't command that. Tony Ferguson can't command that. That means whatever the pie revenue is, and this is partly you know, a function of sales, but whatever the, the revenue share is, um, he would still get a giant check himself without having to share a ton of it. Now, there'd be more of it maybe to go around in an event where he fights Nate Diaz because of the size of the pot. I'm simply saying um, he could take a pretty significant pot from those two without having to worry about the rev share component. Against Nate Diaz, Connor has already said that maybe Nate's pricing himself out, so... Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of him fighting the winner of that one, man. I really am. I like, like, you know, fun MMA is fine. Weird MMA is fine. There's a place for all of it. Um, catch weight fights are cool. There's a place for that too, but there's really, really like, Jesus, man, you've got like maybe, you know, one of the more important figures in the history of MMA currently in his prime. He happens to be the title holder of the most important and most talent rich division, you know, let's see him put it on the line a little bit here, which I think he wants to do. Uh, yeah, that's the one I want to see. That's the one I want to see. Uh, some questions about Tony. The general consensus seems to be that Kevin Lee is more marketable than Tony Ferguson, and this is something I do not understand and was wondering if you agree or not because it does not make sense to me. I'll put the points below. All right, let's hear is Kevin Lee more marketable because he is a bad shit talker? I think we can all agree that exchange on Fox was hard to watch. Uh, okay, I think that Tony is the more exciting fighter than Kevin Lee. Do you agree? Yes. So why is there a general consensus among MMA media and fighters like Ariel? Ariel's a fighter? <laughs> that Lee is more marketable than Ferguson. What are your general thoughts on this matter, and do you think the UFC wants want Lee to win versus, as Ariel suggested, PS, who you got this week on the main event. I'm going to lean Ferguson, but it's I think it's a very close competitive contest, to be, to be quite honest. Um, the thing is, I think Tony has more ways to win, but Tony takes a lot more risks, and I think a guy like Kevin Ferguson, Kevin Lee can really take advantage of that. So I think this is going to be a very, very difficult fight for either guy, but 
I guess we'll see. Um, yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, okay, it's hard to believe if you've never met Kevin Lee. If all you know about Kevin Lee is what you've seen on YouTube or um, you know heard on podcasts or something, I, I don't really know how you view him. It's it's it, how do I say this exactly? He exists in the minds, I think, of a lot of people in a certain way. That is not how he comes across when you interact with him personally. Now, that's true of a lot of fighters. It is hyper true of him. Um, he is, number one, much younger than all these guys and coming into his own. Uh, number two, um, I think he's got a natural gift for self-promotion. And you can say, look, well, everybody hates him. Right. A natural gift for self-promotion. Um and three, I think he's just more aware more aware of how to pull media levers. He's just more keenly in touch with that. Now, as good as Conor McGregor, I don't think so, but uh, pretty good. And I think that's why you got the youth on his side. To the, he, he claims to be the guy who can you know turn the African-American markets to the UFC. That remains to be seen. But certainly beyond that, he just has a certain a, a savviness with the media. And that probably colors our perspective. In maybe direction that doesn't necessarily deserve to go, but I, I, it's just you look at the stuff online. Everyone's like, "This guy is this, this guy is that," and it's not. You, you just have to believe me. It's not how he comes across in person. Now he comes across in person as divisive and loudmouth and and says a lot of things. But these are all things that like you just look at the ing ingredient list. Yes, they may hate you, but what are the ingredient lists for things to get a lot of attention and potentially become a bigger star? Um, he just he just he has a lot of them. Now I've seen some hyperbolic treatment of him. You know, is he going to be the next Conor McGregor, the black Conor McGregor? Well, I don't know about all that, but um, but I do think, given the youth, given the savviness, and given how polarizing he is, uh, he has a lot going for him. Tony, I think, figured things out a, a, in a more gradual way for himself. Number one, the big appeal of Tony is how exciting his fight style is and how ridiculous his resume has become at this point. Like, he earned his place the old-fashioned way. Very, very, you know, punch your, your, your ticket and then, you know, like lunch pail style um, way of just working his way through the lightweight division. And I think a lot of people quite rightly respond to that. Later on, he picked up some media savvy and about how to interact and, and make a splash and, and things like that. And it's come a, a long way. I just don't think it's quite as effortless as Lee's. But don't confuse we like a guy better than another guy with um, that being ultimately who's more marketable. You can be very marketable and be an absolutely uh, a person who is greatly reviled by the wider world. And I see a lot of people really angry at Kevin Lee. Uh, that works to his benefit. Very, very much strong reactions, whether they're good or they're bad, uh, work to his benefit. And he says crazy things and people will go crazy over it. So you're asking me who I think is going to win? Probably Tony. Uh, you're asking me who I think, you know, as the more exciting fight style? Definitely Tony. Um, although, you know, Kevin Lee is a very exciting fighter. You're asking me who I think has the greater marketing potential. I do think there is something to be said for that for Kevin Lee. Lack of stars, but abundance of excellent fighters. Great, great topic. Great topic. Uh, Luke, right now the UFC appears to have a hell of a lot of excellent athletes, fighters, compared to years gone by, showing how the sport has progressed by building promising athletes and turning them into excellent technicians. But where are the stars? 
Unfortunately, everyone is going to be compared to McGregor when in reality no one will get near him. Correct. Kevin Lee is one who is on the cusp of being a star, possibly. Cody Garbrandt, too, possibly. But they still need to work on their charisma and ability to stand out from the crowd. Agreed. But what do the excellent fighters with athletic gifts and appeal like Lee, Garbrandt, Woodley, Rockhold, Miocic, Holloway, etc., have to do outside of winning fights in order to change them um, at the box office? This year has shown that the UFC is missing stars, and some of these fighters need to start promoting themselves and building an attraction from fans if UFC is to survive with no McGregor, John Jones, or Rousey. Boy, what a great question. Um, okay, just one second here. I was thinking about something related to this. You know, uh, the UFC, well, I think, um, I hope when someone's going to ask about this later, I would imagine that we get to it. But uh, as you guys will know, UFC has uh, ended their exclusive negotiating period with Fox Sports. They can go and talk to anybody now. That, that, that doesn't mean that they um, won't sign with Fox Sports either in totality or partially. It just means that they can talk to anyone who they want, just you know, not exclusively Fox Sports. But the reason why that's important is because the next deal will tell us a lot about what kind of revenue streams the UFC is going to rely on, something more consistent like television, something a little bit more volatile like pay-per-view, um, some kind of other arrangement that I have not considered, something. But the key insight from what the current like, okay, so what did I miss? I missed UFC Japan. I mean, seriously, except for maybe a couple of the fights at the top, what is the difference between that and a Bellator card or even an old school World Series of Fighting card? And the answer is just production value. There really is no um, significant difference at, at all uh, from a quality standpoint. It is merely what is on the cage and what the promotion is capable of doing. Um, it is utterly without distinction beyond that. And so what that says is um, you have bloated the roster to the point where you have now entered into that territory. You are now putting on that level of the game, right? There, there's, there's just, it's a, the premium, I've talked about this before, the premium side of the product is so minimal that uh, I don't think you could only put that on, but you have to be very careful about how far you go out because once you get to a certain level, if one or two things goes wrong, you end up into World Series of Fighting territory, and that's where they found themselves with that card. Um, so I think it's going to really impact the number of shows they do because they are in a contract where they just contractually owe a certain amount of shows. They just owe. Um, and as a consequence, they have to put on shows that they perhaps in a different time wouldn't want to. The interesting thing about this oversaturation debate is that it is, I firmly believe that there is a point of shows where you just can't go beyond. But in reality, it's a pretty high number. Probably around 40 or so you shouldn't go beyond no matter what. But the real underlying truth is that the number of shows you should do should be tied to, at the present moment, the number of marketable stars or attractions you're reasonably able to offer. That's sort of the real reality of oversaturation is that um, if you've got a lot of stars, you probably could put on maybe more than 40 shows a year, certainly more than 30. If you're really struggling, you do need to dial it back to make sure that the core product hasn't lost its identity. Because that UFC Japan show was, I mean, it was barely recognizable as a UFC product, barely. 
Um, again, some strong performers on there, you know, Juicio Formiga and stuff like that. But if you guys watch some of these lower shows, you, know, you, you see some pretty legitimate talent there as well. It, this is just not much of a distinction. So you're asking a different question slightly. I kind of want to start here from this place. But I think partly what's going to have to happen is the UFC is just going to have to recognize they're in and it's going to be boom and bust. The fight sports are just naturally prone to this. We are in a bust period. That's just the reality. I think they're going to need to find some kind of deal where they can tailor around that. They're already working on ways to keep funneling in new talent. Ultimate Fighter, just signing top prospects when they can. Free agent acquisitions when they're available. The Contender Series. So they're trying to constantly hustle in new people. They created another women's division. Um so that much is, I mean, they can only reasonably pull in who's there with as many of those tools as they have. I think the other part is going to be cutting down the product, not only to preserve what it's supposed to look like, but also to make sure that the ones who stand out, your Garbrandts, Woodleys, Rockholds, Miocic, I don't think is necessarily, I think Miocic can be marketed as really what he is, which is a Cleveland guy. Um, and if he can get some big fights, maybe he can be more than that. But I, I think it's probably a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a ceiling on him. Um, Holloway, I think the sky's the limit for him. Um, and certainly for Lee and, and especially for Garbrandt as well. Those guys appear to have uh, a pretty bright future if, if things go right. But my point being is um, they need to be more visible in, with the product, a little bit more um, consistently competing and a little bit more prominently featured in the calendar, like in the total space of UFC cards, there should be fewer of them and the ones who are there should be more regularly featured. Um, that's partly contingent upon injury and willingness to compete, but um, I, I, I think that's a key component. Now, beyond that, what can they do individually? Again, Miocic, you know, has Stephen Miocic explicitly told me he doesn't care about celebrity. Explicitly said, I was like, "Do you?" I was like, "Okay, yes, everyone wants to make some good money because it can set you up for your life, and you have a family, and you have kids. You know, what's wrong with wanting that?" And I was like. I'm assuming you want that, but the celebrity you don't care at all about. He, he told me matter-of-factly, I do not care about celebrity. So this is my point. I think they should put either the majority or all of his fights, especially if he's champion, uh, in, the, in Cleveland or the Cleveland area, the Ohio area, um, because I think there he can be everything he, he needs to be. But beyond that, if he's saying, if he's telling you he doesn't care about celebrity, you should believe him. You're just not going to get that from him. He doesn't want that for himself. So, okay. Um, but for the other ones, um, there's actually some there's actually some big news coming out about Rockhold in 2018 uh, that's unrelated to his fight career. Like, really big news um, that I can't quite share yet, but be on the lookout for that. Um so that leaves Holloway, Woodley, Garbrandt, and Lee. I think Woodley is a master self-promoter. The only problem is he's 35, but he has pushed himself to the front of the sport. Given the amount of time he has left, that's probably not the, the person we're most concerned about. I think the Lees and the Garbrands and the Holloways, let's sort of focus on them. What can they reasonably do? In part to keep winning. In part to keep winning impressively. That really has um, a big effect. But beyond that, uh, you, you know, we always talk about, yes, you have to have these memorable wins in the octagon and then you know, these memorable speeches on the mic afterward. But it seems to me you have to do more than that, too. It seems to me you have to really rattle the cage outside of it in some kind of way. And I don't know what that is. Is that political activism? Maybe maybe that's divisive to a point where it works against you. Um, is it some other kind of 
I don't know, um, you know, uh, a way to be identified with a larger group, a larger cause, a good cause that everyone can rally behind. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's finding a way to be interesting in a way that makes the media care about you. Um, but Rousey had the benefit of being this sort of like gender pioneer, which made the media, and again, she had this incredible style of winning. You can see what I mean. It was this, you know, what, why would, why do you, why should the media pay attention to you? Like, what is it you're doing that the media needs to really pay attention to what you're doing? And what Connor was doing was so brash and so crazy and so unheard of. And then he backed it up all those times that it became over time this sensation. That's the way he did it. Ronda Rousey had these incredible wins and was this gender pioneer. John Jones, A, had this family story, but it was more than that. He was just going in there and bulldozing people in ways um, that we hadn't really seen. Now, all these issues outside the cage or even inside the cage, notwithstanding. Right, so there was there was a reason why you made the media pay attention to you. Um, the Holloways, the Garbrandts, and the Lees—they have time on their side. Maybe Lee is that guy who finally begins to um, bring in the full totality of the African American market. In, in which case, boom, here you go. There is your next star. You know, um, but that really is what ha you have to just think about in that case. And it's not really about when I say you know what's the media. You know, do they, how, how do I explain this? It's like I said, they don't owe us anything, but just think about it generally. If someone like Chuck Mindenhall wants to write about you, like really, oh my God, I really want to write about this guy. What are you doing to make him want to do that? Because if Chuck feels that way as a fight fan, chances are many other people do. And then he can tell your story in a way with this wide, um, you know, just disbursement of his ideas and his storytelling ability. You know, that, that's really what you have to do. And, and you know, and it's not necessarily media dependent. You can go around the media and just do things directly through social media and, and whatever. But you get the idea. Like, why is it that beyond what your in-cage exploits are, what are you doing in the wider world that makes you stand out? What are you doing in the wider world that makes you unique? What are you doing in the wider world that makes people have to pay attention to you? What are you doing in the wider world that turns that makes exposure of what you're doing um, interesting to people. And so if you're just winning and then talking shit on the microphone afterwards, I'm not saying that's not nothing. It is. It's a lot. It's a big key, really important ingredient. But that's not superstardom. That's not that next level everyone's talking about. That's the gap. And you got to figure that out. And everyone's going to have their own way of getting there. Connor did it. Rhonda did it for a time. To an extent, Jones did it for a time. Um, Lesnar did it, although he already had a sort of a thing going on before that. But you get the idea. The return of Carlos Condit, highly one of the most violent fighters in the UFC, announced his return recently. And it looks like he'll be fighting at UFC 219. So, Quest Jones. Who's he fighting at 219? I'm, I may have missed that. I saw that he wanted to come back. I saw the tweets while I was gone. Oh, no one yet, I guess. So far, they've got what? Dominic Cruz, Jimmy Rivera, Calvi Calvijo. By the way, I was right about that pronunciation. Carla Esparza, Luis Smolka, and then Mateus Nicolau. Did you all see the J Balvin, Beyonce, Willie William remix of Mi Gente? Did you see how Beyonce pronounced it? The two L's together as a Y, as a J? Thank you. Uh, okay. Let's see. 
Well, I don't. I mean, it would depend entirely on who he fought. I, look, man, who doesn't want to see Carlos Condit? Everybody wants to see Carlos Condit. Like that, I'm all with all of you. But that, you know, and look, Robbie Lawler looked bad against uh, Tyron Woodley, but then looked pretty good against Donald Cerrone. So maybe while Carlos Condit looked bad against Demi and Maya with additional time off, maybe he's back to where he needs to be. If that's the case, you know, let's go. Let's go, player. Um, but I would really want him against somebody not nameless, but, you know, not top five. I just no like top 15, top 10, top, you know, six to 10, somewhere in that range. Who would that be? Let's see. Let's see. As it currently stands. Again, these rankings are, you know, a little bit off. But you got Robbie. Wonderboy, Maya, Masvidal, Dos Anjos. Okay. Then Cerrone, Condit, Covington, Santiago. Does Ponzinibbio have a fight coming up or not? Uh, Magni would be a good one too. So Somewhere else, somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. I mean, they got Kamara Usman at 11. That's going to change. Kamara Usman, man. Pfft. That dude. That dude is so naturally talented. It's insane. All right. Bloated UFC rosters. All right. Look, with the success of the Contender Series, coupled with the Ultimate Fighter and then the introduction of women's flyweight, is the UFC roster getting a bit too large? Oh, y'all, it's been too large for a long time. It's not getting a bit too large. It is too large and has been. There are more, I've said this before, there are more UFC fighters than players in the NBA. You know, I mean, what are we doing? They currently have around 560 fighters under contract, which is 100. Oh, here we go. Which is 100 more than the NBA has on the roster. Thank you. As a hardcore MMA fan who watches almost every event and ingests weekly MMA media content, scrolling through the names, I find myself having never heard at least a third of the fighters in each division. Frankly, only was aware of one third via name only or through having seen one or two of their fights. Is there any benefit for the UFC to keep such a large roster or does it dilute the product, especially if the UFC can't tell most of these fighters stories? Could the UFC also experiment with lessening the amount of shows or shortening cards to combat the complaints of weak cards? Remember something about the current state of things. They are stuck. They are stuck. They have committed to a certain amount of shows, uh, a certain amount of product that they've given to their television partners um, and certainly on pay-per-view as well, although that's a little bit more adjustable. But they, they're essentially they have a certain amount of commitments. Thirty-five shows, I think, bare minimum. Plus, you have to keep these uh, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, somewhere around there. Plus, you have to keep these divisions moving. So, as it currently stands, there's nothing they can do about it. This is what I mentioned before. This is why the next TV deal is so interesting. Not merely because what it portends for the UFC's exposure, what kind of money they're going to get, what kind of money they can pay out to what extent their future is or is not in pay-per-view, all, all, all kinds of stuff. On top of that, it will also tell us about how many shows they want to give out and guarantee each year. And that, in turn, will determine um, how big the rosters are. Now, I don't expect a dramatic decline, but I know that not everyone in the UFC is happy that they have a women's 125 division. I can tell you that matter-of-factly. It's not a unanimous belief inside the organization that's a great idea. It's just not. Um, but I think they're trying to find ways to maximize the roster that they have. And I think many believe that's a great way to go. Um, 
but yeah, like other way too many. I mean, way too many. When they wanted to, remember, do you guys remember how many years ago it was at this point? Maybe 2014, 2015, when they put up that picture of the world shaped like an octagon and it was like the caption was like world effing domination i was saying to myself i was like this is just not possible without becoming something other than what you are right because if what you are is the premium side of the product you can't actually do shows everywhere it doesn't actually work you just become something completely different now maybe you can make a revenue model that would change to accompany that but fundamentally you would just cease to become what you are you would become a part with a premium product, but you know, a farm league, an international um, recruiter of, you know, uh, you would you would be supplanting the regional scene in some ways. You'd be a regional promoter and a national international promoter. You'd be all those things. You wouldn't just be what you used to be. Um, and how reasonable a task is that to pull off? As you can see, it's insanely difficult. Yeah, they're going to go to mainland China or whatever, but um, you know, one, I think they, their success is often overstated. Interesting, but overstated. And uh, the UFC's ability even to break into Europe. I mean, you know, have they had, yes, they've had shows in Germany, but have they really had like a triumphant show in Germany, like a show in Berlin or Munich or something where, you know, the celebrities of the, of the uh, intercontinental Europe are, are all there and, you know, it's like a, like, a, like a Klitschko fight, something like that. And you can say, well, no, because institutional powers have kept them out. Yes, I understand that. But that's my point. Like, that's that's Europe's largest economy, and they've barely made a dent in there. They keep going back to the places where uh, it's a little bit more hand-in-glove, right? So um, Holland, uh, obviously, UK, Ireland, uh, you know, all and Holland, obviously, they speak Dutch, but, you know, it's, what, 98% of the Dutch speak English or something. Um, so it's also English speaking as well. Um, you know, they've had some success in other places and, you know, you see Bellator trying to get into places like Italy uh, and stuff, but super slow going, man. It's just at some point there is a natural limitation to what your product is, even if it's international. And yes, the UFC is in international in many ways that other places are not. Obviously it has a big presence in Brazil and, um, you know, a, a slow going in Mexico and other parts of Spanish speaking Latin America, but you get the idea. It's just not, it's just not possible to be all those things and be either a what you are or even be successful at it. And so I really feel like the next stage of UFC, they really tried to say, how big can we be right from 2011 to this TV deal? What was this whole push about? You know, think about the, where the UFC was in 2011 and where they wanted to go. So much of that was let, let's just, let's put our, you know, foot on the gas pedal and just see what this can become. And it did reach incredible, amazing heights. And in many ways, heights I never thought it would reach, to be quite honest with you. Um, you don't want to limit yourself too much. Um, and of course, UFC is going to Poland here pretty soon, and we'll see what they can do with that. Poland obviously has been a big, uh, a native MMA supporter, obviously, with KSW. But uh, there, are, there just are some limits to it, man. There just are some limits to it. Limits about what kinds of costs you want to pay to get to where you want to go. Even if you pay those costs, what is reasonably possible and what time horizons. Um, it's just hard. It's just hard. And so I think the next TV deal, which really will define the product in very profound ways, I think that needs to be, uh, that needs to be where they pair back. The, they need to pull back a little bit, right? They need to edit it a little bit curate it a little bit let it let it over deliver a little bit 
Uh, some of that, I think, is really warranted at this stage. Cruz Rivera, initial thoughts of the matchup. Going to be uh, interesting. I haven't thought much about it, but... Luke, is the delay around Miocic announcing a new fight because of the contract dispute? That is my understanding, yes. But that's okay, because you can make some interesting fights around him in the meantime, so I'm okay with that. UFC 216, Luke, in your opinion, who has the best chance of getting an upset this weekend among these three fighters? Lewis versus Verdum, okay. Borg versus DJ, okay. Or Lee versus Ferguson. Is Lee? The, oh, yeah, is the underdog. I'm sorry. Who has the best chance of getting an upset? I would put it as Lee Ferguson 1, if we're talking about chances of upset. I would say Louis Verdum 2, and then Borg DJ last. So the reasons why is because, one, I think Lee is just a very, very talented guy um, and has all the tools to beat Ferguson, especially if Ferguson takes a lot of risks. So I don't, I, again, I expect Tony to win, but, you know, Lee is very, very talented. Uh, I would pick Louis versus Verdum second for that reason that I sort of alluded to with Ferguson. Verdum. You know, it's not that Verdum didn't take a bunch of risks early in his career, because it's not true that he actually did. Or it's not true that he actually didn't. He really did, uh, you know, in many ways, fight, chin up, you know, charging forward. That's not necessarily new. But there was a portion there, like, with those Mark Hunt fight, with that Mark Hunt fight, um, the Cain Velazquez fight, where he was really fighting smart. And he always fought smart on the ground, you know, because it's Verdum, but... Um, you know, where he was on the stand-up, you know, making guys look away and then jumping with the flying knee and, you know, you know, popping Kane slowly from the outside, getting him to charge and then jumping on the gear. Like, he was just doing really smart things. And then, like, in his last few fights, you know, he's running out there and throwing a jumping sidekick to heavyweights right away, which is crazy. I mean, it's fun, but it's crazy. He beat Travis Brown the second time. And, yes, Redoom's older, but Brown is not the same as he used to be. And it was like, yes, he won convincingly, but I don't think he won as convincingly as he did the first time he fought Brown. And then, you know, he goes and then uh, who did he fight in his last contest? Was it uh, Overeem? You know, and that was boring as hell or weird as hell, too. Like, it just seems to me like, I don't know, he's kind of regressed a little bit more recently back to a place where he's not making excellent decisions like he was in that, in, that, in that interesting stretch there. He's also 40 years old. So here's my point. You know, obviously I still probably suspect Lewis has susceptibility to body shots at range. If Verdum fights smart, this is a totally winnable contest, totally winnable contest. But is Verdum going to fight smart? He can't take punishment like he used to, you know? And Lewis, whatever else you want to say about him, just packs a jackhammer of a punch in either hand, really. Uh, you know, wouldn't be too smart to challenge that, would it? So this really is on on Verdum. And then, you know, Borg versus DJ, anything can happen. Borg could show us something we didn't think of before. But that's what it has to be for him to win. He has to show us something we haven't seen before because otherwise what we've seen doesn't really give an indication that there's a whole lot he can give to DJ. But, you know, how many of us were like, oh, Poor Holly Holm, you know, she's walking out to her death there against Ronda Rousey, then she goes and just bludgeons her. Forthcoming fight of the year. Who do you think, uh, excuse me, do you think the fight of the year will come from the final few months of the year? You've got Ferguson Lee, Cerrone Till, that should be a good one. Matt Brown versus Diego Sanchez. 
I'm, I should be going to UFC Norfolk, by the way. I applied for credentials. Uh, I should be going. Cody versus TJ. Frankie versus Holloway. Cruz Rivera. Have I missed any? Someone says Lima versus Rory. Yeah, Lima versus Rory should be sick. And then Poirier versus Pettis. Another good one. Ooh. Uh, and you missed, I don't know how long it will go, but you missed uh, Nganu versus uh, Overeem. So of the ones you mentioned, Ferguson Lee, Lima Rory, Cerrone Till, Brown Sanchez, Cody TJ, Frankie Holloway, Cruz Rivera. I'm going to pick Cody TJ and Frankie Holloway as my two favorites. That doesn't mean in the end they will ultimately be all that good, but my sense is they will. And I just feel like they're really evenly matched, especially Cody versus TJ. But I feel like one of them is going to pull away in that one and really like there's going to be, they're going to be very even early and one's going to pull away late. And I feel like Frankie versus uh, Holloway is going to be the same way. Um, and I really, I just have to be honest. I really love Max Holloway's game. I, I mean, I'm so kind of in the tank for the guy. So maybe that blinds me to maybe some of his weaknesses or something. But I really, 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 really like his game a lot. And uh, I have such admiration for what he has become as a technician that I, you know, anytime he's on the calendar, especially if he's defending that title or whatever, you know, I still think, man, everyone talks about, you know, well, the Nate Diaz fight, maybe that's next for Connor. Maybe it's Ferguson Lee or. You know, something like maybe he fights Paulie Malinaji for please God no. But to me, if you're asking me, man, what is the most interesting fight you could make with Conor McGregor? Maybe not right now, but I would really, really like to see him fight Max Holloway one more time because I don't think Max was anywhere close to who he is now. And to Conor McGregor's credit, uh, who won that first contest, he was injured too, you know, so uh, with a bad injury and fought through it. Uh, the second one of those I feel like would be awesome to see. Really, really awesome to see. That's kind of what I – I mean, that's just sort of, you know, not what you asked, but here I am. Uh, Overeem versus Nganu. I think everyone is excited for this fight purely because we get to see Francis Nganu again. However, would you agree that this is stylistically the toughest matchup for Francis? The new Overeem takes zero risk, so it's going to be extremely difficult to counter him. Really, a fighter that is comfortable creating their own offense and instigating exchanges, like Miocic, is more suited to beating Overeem. And Gnu has only been training MMA for four to five years, so how could he have the technical ability to be able to land one of those bombs on Overeem? Um, so I actually would say it's the opposite. It's the toughest stylistic matchup for Overeem in a way, which is by that I mean it's to your point. Yes, it's true. And Gnu does not have the technical maturity. Uh, that Overeem does, not by a long shot. And he may never get it, given how late he started training and how long Overeem has been doing this. And Overeem can fight at range. But in any kind of fight, it is based, especially in MMA, it's basically impossible to avoid damage, right? Some damage, and some, in some cases, some considerable damage, is an inevitable consequence, especially at heavyweight between two strikers. I mean, between two strikers like this. So my point is Overeem has the ability to fight on the outside and really work and work and work and maybe chip away at Nganu. And there's a lot about Nganu we don't know because he doesn't ever go very long for the most part. At least not more recently he hasn't. And he keeps getting better over time. So it has been deceiving in some ways. Um, but his power is so fight-altering. His ability is so dramatic to change a contest that... Um, that I actually don't think it's going to take much for him to potentially hurt Overeem in a really fight fight altering way. Like could be one body shot, could be one kind of just even glancing shot. Uh, 
and that could open up the door. I, I actually feel like uh, if Overeem wins, he'll win by the skin of his teeth. Uh, or, um, you know, he'll win, you know, just picking apart Nganu at range, but there'll be some testy moments there. Uh, Nganu, uh, you know, you're right. He doesn't have the technical maturity, but he's going to land at some point. Right? He's going, it's just, that's the way it works. He's going to land. And when he does, uh, what is Overeem going to do about it? I sort of feel like, you know, I wouldn't say that with just about any heavyweight striker, but with him, you can you can say that because it's just blinding power. And there's a little more accuracy to it than folks realize as well. And he's just so athletic. So yeah. He's 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 gonna land on over him. Hey Luke, if WME wanted to break ties with USADA. What do you believe would be the best strategy to avoid suffering a total PR disaster? Or do you believe that's impossible? I don't think it's impossible, but it would require some participation on the part of the fighters, namely that uh, if they got rid of USADA or the contract ended and they just didn't renew their services or something like that, and the fighters said, we have a fighters union ready to go, or there already was a fighters union ready to go, and that after USADA, um, after the contract expired, the fighters worked out a anti-doping plan that their union agreed on. I really don't think that would be much of an issue. Uh, I don't. Now, if they, from a PR standpoint, whatever else you think about anti-doping, but from a PR standpoint, if they just said we're not going to renew our services with USADA and then said we're just going to go back to state commission testing, you know, or something like that, there probably would be some serious concerns for that uh, from a PR standpoint. That would look quite bad because that would just look like you abandoned it because it became, you know, became, you know, um, inconvenient, which it has become inconvenient. But I think some people would argue that that inconvenience is, is a is a necessity. So if you were abandoning that, um, it would look quite bad. But if you substituted it quickly with something where the fighters had a say, uh, where the fighters had some involvement and some control, much like all the other leagues do, uh, I really don't think it'd be that big a deal. I, I, I don't. But, you know, short of that, I don't know. Potential three-division champ? No, let's... Women's flyweight champ. I'm happy that this is finally happening, but having actually watched the season, I'm basically seeing a bunch of sacrificial lambs being led to an inevitable slaughter at the hands of Joanna or Valentina. Correct. Question is, who do you think is the most likely to be the women's flyweight champ in a year's time? Uh, Shevchenko. Folks don't realize this. Shevchenko is undefeated, as I believe. I should be right about this. Shevchenko is undefeated against Ian Jacek in Muay Thai. Now, this is not Muay Thai, but... Uh, Everyone wants to see that fight, but it's not much of a rivalry. Shevchenko is, is the queen there, like, by far. Um, so we'll see what happens at 125, but you're asking me who I think is going to win at 125? Yeah, I think Shevchenko is um, going to be the easy champion there, for sure. I don't think anybody down there can beat her. Anthony Johnson's manager has said Rumble could come back as a heavyweight. Do you think the UFC would be smart to convince him to make that return at light heavyweight, given the lack of depth in that division? And can you imagine a few heavyweights you think he could beat and the ones you wouldn't give him a good chance? Please give your thoughts on this possibility in general. Uh, actually, my thought was if he does come back, it should be at heavyweight. 
right? I mean, look, if he retired because he really was tired of everything in a real existential kind of way, then he should stay retired. If it was one of these things where, you know, you had Habib, for example, who, or when he cracked his ribs, he was like, ah, I might be retiring. And then he ultimately decided against it. But, you know, sometimes if you've just been tired of training and you've been injured or just some part of the grind just chews you up enough, you get sick of it. But with some time away, sometimes your feelings change. If that's the case, that's fine. But the way he went out against Cormier was a little bit disconcerting. Namely, you know, look, and I, I mentioned this before, when one of the sort of revelations of these older fighters in Bellator has been that they don't pursue the fight with the same kind of vigor as a young man does, right? I mean, when the bottom drops out on them, it drops out pretty fast, relatively speaking. And that's so noticeable because even when a guy wins or loses in MMA, if they're young enough and they're talented enough, you know, yes, not everyone has this exact same kind of ferocious hustle of Diego Sanchez, but the point being is there's generally a pretty serious pursuit of the fight, right? That's why they're in there. When you don't see that, it stands out because it is so unusual. And it, it stood out in that Cormier contest. Now, again, that was a function of um, maybe he was just too much wear and tear and just couldn't deal with his life anymore and wanted out. That's fine. But all I'm saying is let's not put up any roadblocks to the guy coming back if what he wants to do is come back because he is feeling better. right? He's not, doesn't, he's not quite wearing the weight of MMA anymore. Um, if, it, if it's, however, because whatever proposed marijuana business he was trying to get off the ground hasn't quite turned a profit on the horizon that he thought it would, that's a little bit more concerning. I cannot say that that is the reason. I'm merely speculating, but um, just something to keep in mind. But, you know, coming back at heavyweight, sure. Uh, who could he fight? Let's look at these heavyweight donkeys. You've got Tim Johnson, no. Travis Brown, no. Curtis Blades, sure. Arlovsky, you could do that rematch. Junior Albini, sure. Stefan Struve, sure. Olenek, sure. Tybura, sure. Volkov, sure. Derek Lewis, sure. And it starts getting a little bit more difficult for him. Hunt and Ganu, Velasquez, Verdun, and Overeem. But any of those guys, yeah, sure. It's like very easy to decide on what fights for him. Gustafson or Ozdemir, who has a better case for a title shot from a ranking standpoint? The community in here looked divided in the comment sections lately. I would say Gustafson, but it's debatable, sure. Which one do you think is the better matchup for DC, given we don't know the damage that the last Jones fight did to him as far as performance goes? Gustafson. Gustafson. I think very high. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've consistently been wrong about Ozdemir. You know, oh, I don't know if he can beat Jimmy Manoa. I think he goes and just smokes him, you know. Um, so maybe he's the guy. But... I just, from an intrigue standpoint, I would rather see the Gustafson fight, right? All right, it's about 2.15-ish. Because we have to go to the Twitter machine. So you can get at me on Twitter, at LThomasNews. You can use the hashtag ChatRappers, which is a stupid, stupid hashtag, but it's the one I'm stuck with. Uh, okay, so let's do it now. Have you heard if Cyborg's contract that expires this fall has a championship clause? Um, I have not heard that, but I've been away. I could probably check up on it. Should the UFC go to Russia in the World Cup year, and why would Cyborg offered less money to fight? I don't know if Cyborg was offered less money to fight relative to, like, you know, you got a payout on a card where John Jones fought. You're naturally going to get a lot more because there's a lot more buys. We're not going to pay you as much in terms of the overall product or the overall, you know, sum, but our rate is going to not change. 
I don't know if I don't know which I don't know what the scenario is here because if they're offering the same rate, but you're going to get less because you're not going to fight on a big card, there's not much of a gripe. But um, you get the idea. Who do you favor in Max versus Frankie? Max. Maybe a preview show when it's closer. Fascinating matchup to me. Maybe. I think Max Holloway is going to be very hard to beat. Who do you think Platinum Perry ends up fighting next? I have been away from the Platinum Perry sweepstakes. So I don't know. Is he, uh, has he been rumored to be uh, attached to certain names? I saw him and uh, uh, Tyron Woodley have like a bit of a uh, uh, burgeoning friendship, which was kind of interesting. But uh, I did not see his – I think he fought while I was away. I missed that one. You're giving Connor a pass for ducking tough fights at 145 and 155. Okay, let's say that's true. All the more reason for him to fight the winner of Ferguson versus Lee, correct? So there you go. Um, once the female 125-pound champ is crowned, who is likely to be the first challenger? Yeah, Joanna? Sure. What is the chance of MVP coming to UFC? Right now, it's zero. Connor is the reason why there is no hierarchy in the UFC. He lack self-awareness. Okay. The clamoring for post-fight call-outs is really annoying. It's not natural. Then your merits should be enough. I would mostly agree with that, actually. Everyone's like, that's the key. That's the, that's the trick. It can be. It can be. Certainly the big Nate Diaz post-Michael Johnson win is a big example of that. But how many innumerable call-outs have there been that just kind of fell flat? It really just all depends. Do you find it suspicious that Jones passed two tests in the middle of camp? No, I do not find it suspicious. I don't know what you mean by suspicious, though. He tried a new supplement that late? Oh, I see what you mean. Uh, I'm going to wait for more information on this whole Jones thing. I mean, I don't think anything came out of it while I was gone. And nothing new has been added to it. And I really feel like uh, I want to hear his arguments for this. And I want to hear what USADA has to say about it. And I'm guessing they're going to hammer him. And there's going to be an arbitration. And I'm curious to hear what the arbitration panel has to say as well. Now that Bullet Valentina is going to go to 125, is Joanna going to have a hard time dominating this division? She, again, anything's possible. Uh, things could change. But Valentina, you're going to end up seeing is going to have her way at 125. Doesn't matter who you put up there. So, an opinion on uh, Catalonia? I don't have much of one. This is not. As, I mean, I've been to Barcelona once in my life. It is an absolutely spectacular place. I don't have much to say about it because I don't really understand the dynamics. Uh, of Spanish history particularly well. I know that they have their own language. I've seen it. You go to hotel rooms in certain places. Uh, and I remember my hotel room in Barcelona. I think this was on the Gran Villa. I could be wrong about the street, but it was um, all the instructions were in English, Spanish, and then uh, what is it, Catalan? And Catalan. And uh, it looks a bizarre looking language. It's like a mix between French and Spanish and something else. Um, Anyway, I don't know enough about it. Certainly, you would want to not tamper with people's democratic aspirations, but 
I, I, I just don't know enough about it to say anything. So beyond that, you know. Uh, thought, oh, yes, this is so true. Thoughts on Gordon Ryan moving from no-gi to gi. Also, will he move from MMA within the next two years? Did you guys see Gordon Ryan at ADCC this year? Holy shit. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, you know, the fact that he couldn't beat, uh, was it Felipe Pena in absolute? Okay, all right. And here was the crazy part about it. I did not see all the matches, but, I mean, Dude, here's the truth about things like EBI. It's an, it's an interesting tournament. I still prefer, I've made this point a million times, I still much prefer points to uh, no-gi, or sorry, not no-gi, I'm sorry, um, uh, sub-only. Um, I know that sub-only is a little bit more palatable for people who have a, so they come from MMA because they don't know this, this all the intricacies of jujitsu, and that's fine. You know, there's a place for everything. It's not my favorite. I think points is better, and ADCC, by the way, is points mostly but you get the idea um but ebi has typically recruited what i would call the a minus or b class level of grappler now those guys are very 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 good and can compete with the a level it's not like there's this drastic difference but they typically don't win like you know uh, there are some guys there who are very very talented um and they they can place maybe at adcc you know in the top five top seven which is hard to do but they don't really win 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 um, and Gordon Ryan goes out there and not only wins, but, you know, it's just subbing the entire world, you know, submitting Keenan Cornelius, um, uh, is just, is just insane. It's just insane. I mean, he's, I mean, I can't remember all the guys he submitted. It was a shocking, a shocking run. And the funny part about it all was, you know what? I felt bad for him because this is the match I did see. Dylan Dennis gave Gordon Ryan everything he could handle. Um, Dylan Dennis did an amazing, amazing, like, it's sad that Dylan Dennis, you know, he's had a, a, some bad runs at some recent competitions, and it hasn't looked all that great. He actually looked really good against Gordon Ryan. It's just that Gordon Ryan pulls guard and has this interesting thing where he sets up a leg entanglement, waits for you to apply the leg entanglement, and then does, like, this weird ankle pick uh, again, and uh, almost had it working on Dylan Dennis, but Dylan Dennis kept shutting it down, shutting it down, shutting it down. It just so happened that that was the first match that the both of them had in the what 88 kilogram division uh and then jt torres winning the 77 kilogram division and then my god craig jones out of australia submitting on the same day homolo bahal i believe and Marillo santana what like shocking shocking so like craig jones is australian but um i have to say that was a huge moment for american nogi grappling for Torres and Gordon Ryan to win, and for Gordon Ryan to go in there and submit everybody that he did and effortlessly uh, was shocking. I think he submitted Cyborg, too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Abreu. Totally opened my eyes about him. Totally earned. I mean, he had my respect before, but now he has my respect as an A-class competitor with the very, 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 very highest level. Now, will that translate to the gi? I don't know. Keenan's way ahead in the gi, way ahead. Um, and it's all these lapel guards that, you know, reverse De La Worm guard and stuff that, you know, if you've not really been working in, um, you're going to have a hard time catching up with. And Gary Tonum, those guys, they don't put on the gi all that often. But, you know, I'm not ready to count out Gordon Ryan. Really happy to see him. But he is the preeminent American talent in no gi grappling on the world stage, period. That is the guy amazed amazed by what he was able to do at that adcc blown away 
Uh, okay. Glad you had a nice vacation. Please comment on those three guys, including the Colombian Twista, who freestyled for you. That is, these guys came up to me on the street in Spanish and freestyle rapped about like what I was wearing and what I looked like and where I was from. And there's a video of it on my Facebook page. It's pretty awesome. Do you see Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier being the next fight booked for them while contenders arise? I certainly hope so. Is there any talk with the new UFC ownership of scaling down the number of pay-per-views? There is some, I think Fred O'Brien talked about this first a couple of, about a year or two ago. There is some documentation to indicate that they might be considering that in an effort to, number one, have a more, not a more frequent presence, presence on pay-per-view, but a more robust one. And then giving some of the better content to the television providers to get a bigger, uh, you know, to bigger rights fee. Does Shab have a point about Bisping GSP being in New York a bad thing due to passing strict medicals? Uh, I had a bigger concern for Bellator NYC when you had like Vanderlei versus Chael and Fedor fighting. And then Metmetrion's in good health, but he's, you know, older. Uh, and they all seem to get through it. So probably not. But it, to, I, I didn't hear what Shab had to say about it. But is there an additional risk? In putting it in New York, yes, there is an additional risk in putting it in New York. What do you think of Triple G versus Canelo? I thought Triple G won that pretty easily. Um, Adelaide Bird, man, <laughs> what a, what a clown! What a total clown! And you know, uh, there was that media member who was grandstanding in the post-fight press conference. I don't remember who he was. I think I've blocked him on Twitter or at least muted him because he's uh, an incredibly stupid person. But. Um, but, you know, let us please, can we please stop talking about the Nevada Commission and, like, their willingness to own up to mistakes or, you know, you know, publicly discuss them to the media because Bob Bennett goes out there and obfuscates for a few minutes and then does nothing really of substantive change. Um, we, we, we just need to, we need to end this fantasy that this is a real thing that's happening oh the nevada commission they're really they're taking it seriously you know i mean please stop they're not it's not it's just kabuki theater they don't care um but you know in terms of what i thought i thought it was you could say eight rounds to four for triple g seven rounds to five i could also live with as well six to six I have a little bit of a harder time with let's say seven to five just to be uh fair to canelo I think the thing that stood out to me was that Canelo landed clean on Triple G and didn't budge him at all. And I think he was expecting that to change. The nature of Triple G moving forward the way he did uh, and then Canelo counterpunching, that, that all went basically according to, to expectation. I think what, what, what really opened my eyes was that he couldn't really do much to physically deter Triple G. <laughs> and that was shocking because Canelo was a hell of a puncher. Um, I hope they do the rematch and I hope they don't do it inside Nevada, which I know that they're talking about not doing. Uh, who do you find has the best social media presence currently? What would you say are the different styles fighters use on social media and which strategies are the most effective? I don't follow many fighters on social media and I don't mean this to be disparaging, but many of them, not the fighters themselves, but their social media feeds are kind of boring, um, because it's like, Hey, off to do laundry to the gym. Check out this, blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, I'll say that Instagram, I find it a lot better than Twitter to follow fighters. I follow more of them there. Uh, Jessica Penny has a hilarious dog that she calls Ludo. Um, that is amazing. Uh, who else do I like on social media? I like following um, Phil Daru for the coach at American Top Team. If you're into powerlifting, this dude posts all his powerlifting stuff on there, as well as like, um, you know, scientific studies around what kind of training or stress or programming is best. It's really, really cool stuff. You can check that out. Uh, but most of my social media is just news and uh, a few people that I know and, uh, you know, journalists. And on Facebook, it's not Facebook, I'm sorry, on uh, Instagram, it's uh, mostly people involved in some kind of lifting. Klokov, Kristen Pope, Max Ida, or Max Ida, uh, Johnny Candido, Brian Shaw, um, Silent Mike, uh, Alan Thrall, that kind of thing. So, what else did I miss? Did you see Gokan Saki's fight? What did you think of his potential in the thin, light heavyweight division? I did not see that yet. I saw that he got tested a little bit and then it came out and then he was able to kick his, uh, mouthpiece, but I actually have not watched the contest. Uh, if you look at a post-fight interview, I know which one you're talking about. With Jones, he says, I beat DC the first time when I was off steroids. Why would he say off? The quote was, I beat DC the first time when I was off steroids, and the second time I was off steroids. Again, I'm not really going to look into whether that was an admission, inadvertent, or some way of misspeaking. I want to hear like like hard evidence. Hard evidence is what I want to hear. And you've got some of that. Of course, the A and B sample coming back positive, but uh, I'm gonna. I, I want to hear real evidence. Uh, but you know, if you guys want to believe that he's guilty uh, of the things you think he might be, who could say that you don't have good reason to think that? Because you do. Will Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm happen? Boy, um, I can't tell if Cyborg is a malcontent or partly a malcontent, and then the UFC interactions exacerbate that. I don't really know what the issue is with her. And, you know, you hear things from inside the, the UFC about how she's a malcontent. And then, you know, you hear some of the offers that the UFC makes her and you're like, well, maybe she has a right to be a malcontent. I, it's, they just don't get along. They just don't get along. There's just no other way to say it. The UFC and Chris Cyborg don't get along. They don't work well. Some partnerships just don't work. And I don't think this one, I mean, not to say that it couldn't work, but it would take a lot of effort, and it just doesn't feel like that one is a match made in heaven. Um, and maybe she's hard to work with no matter the, the promoter, but they don't work well together, and it's just a fact. Uh, what you can do about it, I don't know. I really don't. But she just seems desperately unhappy at all times. And whether that's because she's a malcontent generally or she's pushed into being one because of her treatment, I don't know. I really don't. Ooh, the Pixel Book is Google's first premium convertible laptop. It's a thousand bucks, four in one design, 10 hours of battery life. Your boy might have to get that. Gonna, gonna have to steal a thousand dollars though, because after vacation, I'm broke. Okay. Thank you so much for watching. We are back, large and in charge. Um, please subscribe to MMA Fighting, which is the channel below. Give the video a thumbs up. I always appreciate it when you do. 
Uh, Ariel, I believe, is off to Las Vegas either today or tomorrow. Today, I believe. Um, and there is an MMA beat tomorrow. I'm going up to New York, so there is an MMA beat. The train rolls on, and it should be a lot of fun. So thank you guys so much for uh, patiently waiting while I was gone. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, you want to email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, at LThomasNews on Twitter. And until next time, haven't said this in a while, ladies and gents, stay frosty. <laughs>